0: This is a Full Circle podcast, connecting ideas with the power to act. This podcast is brought to you from our archives at Full Circle Brussels. We're a unique community of thinkers and doers discussing ideas that matter. Today, I'm introducing journalist Mats Lewin. Mats Lewin has been writing about technology and science for about two decades. For more than 10 years, he's been a leading report on technology for a Swedish technology magazine, and he's also a managing editor of the forward-looking digital magazine, Next Magazine, Focusing on the deep implications in people's lives of accelerating technology development. Sit back and enjoy the talk. Okay, thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, um, I'm a technology and science journalist since uh, about 15, 20 years in Sweden for the technology magazine New Technique, New Technology. Uh, uh, Actually, currently one year off uh, from work because I'm focusing on these activities as a speaker and moderator and uh, author. I find it very, very uh, satisfying, actually. Um, anyway, you know, as a technology journalist, over the years, I, I'm less and less I've become interested in the details and more and more, I'm trying to look up and see the big picture and see where we're actually heading with technology development. And also feel how much it accelerates. I mean, physically, literally, sitting in front of my computer in the last 10 years, I've had a very strong feeling about things speeding up, news, technology news, science news coming faster and faster and faster. And what about that? How come? How come things are accelerating? And and what I also notice is that people are are asking me because kind of people have this sensation of big things going on, a big change going on, but it's so difficult to understand really what it is all about. So, What's the, really, what, what's the driving force, where does this change come from, where does it lead us? And I think there are two good reasons to that. Because most of us traditionally we think about technology as a tool like a knife or a hammer or even a computer that we program to do what we want it to do. It's a tool, and it do exactly what it's instructed to do. It's not like that any longer. Because technology progress is so fast and so strong and technology is so penetrating in our society that it has become a driving force for change more than ever before. And it's stronger than, for example, in the Industrial Revolution where we had new technologies bringing out a change in society because Internet and IT technology is so present everywhere that you can't really stop it, even if you're a government or a country. It's everywhere and it's accelerating. And people really don't understand that it's a driving force. And the second thing, I think what makes it difficult for people to understand is that we tend to look at technology and see be amazed and thrilled about what we can do today with technology I mean computers can can stop a car automatically and they can they can be be driving a car they can win against humans in chess or in jeopardy that's I'm going to talk about later but we tend to uh, believe that this is the state of the situation and it's going to remain like that for several years we forget to believe that it continues. To develop and even accelerating, so keep those two things in mind today, because those two things I think they are important keys to understand why things are changing so fast. So, okay, um, and I say it's accelerating, and accelerating technologies is uh, a focus for me because it's it's a key thing to understand what's happening in our world today. And to make you understand a little bit about accelerating technologies, some people maybe talk about exponential technologies, I mean, if you've heard that name, exponential, what is that? And to give you a clue, I'm going to tell you a story about the creator of the chessboard. I, today I learned that it was a guy and not a woman. I don't know that even, but somebody, somebody told me yeah, well, it's actually a man who invented the chessboard. Okay, so this man, a clever man, he went to his emperor and he wanted a reward for this invention of this smart game with 64 squares, what did he ask for? He asked for 1 grain of rice on the first square, and 2 in the second, 4 in third, 8, 16, 32. Oh, well, it seems to, you know, start slowly, but that's an exponential development, exponential growth. And the thing about those is that they tend to, you know, once they get started, it becomes very, very, very much. Can you just have a guess about if you take the first half of that chessboard, the first 30, 32 32 squares, how much rice would will, will we have there? Just have a guess, like that. Yeah, but how much is that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. It's a hundred tons of rice, just on the first half. But that's not the big story. The big story comes on the second half. On the, on the, on all, on the whole chessboard, we're going to have a mountain of rice that's bigger than Mount Everest. And half of that mountain will be on the last square. And if you had another square afterwards, you would have another mountain that plus one grain of rice because that's the mathematics behind this. This is exponential growth. Okay, so do we have that around? Yeah, we do. The most common example of exponential growth is something that you all have in your pockets. I don't have it here. I put it in my jacket over there. Yeah, smartphone. Why so? Yeah, because the development of electronics is described by Moore's law, Gordon Moore was the founder of Intel. In 1965, he observed, just be, it's not a law actually, it's an observation. He observed that the number of transistors that we put on a microchip, a semiconductor chip, you know those chips that we have in all kinds of electronic devices from computers to phones to, to uh, micro ovens or whatever in, in our cars everywhere. their number of transistors are doubling every second year, more or less. Well, this will be going on for 10 years, he said. It's been going on for 50 years and it's not stopping. I, I, you can, I can tell you, there is a physical limit with silicon as material in semiconductors that we're going to reach in 10 or 15 or 20 years, I don't know, but there are so many ideas how we can keep on that speed doubling every second year with other ideas, not making it two-dimensional, but three-dimensional, working with nanotubes or with graphene, Or there are so many ideas, don't worry. And what happened with that? So what's the result of that? Our smartphones? Well, some guy a few years ago, when we had iPhone 4, well, it was a few years, two, three, four, five years ago, took up a catalog from Radio Shack, this uh, um, magazine, American magazine for uh, electronic gadgets. And look at the gadgets that we, that, that, that we used to have instead of our smartphone. All those gadgets that, that we have substituted with our smartphone. You know, video camera, music machine, typewriter, calculator, and telephone, by the way, <laughs> I forgot that, uh, or a computer, whatever, anyway. All those gadgets together would have cost about $3,000 in 1991. Well, immediately someone else said, stop a minute, wait a minute, that's not true, because if you calculate the computational power, the processor speed, the memory, and the connectivity that you have in that device, in your smartphone, that machine in 1991 would have cost not $3,000, but $3 million. So, let's remember what has been happening since 1991 and which will continue to happen if Moore's Law continues. It's incredible. It's easy to forget, right? Now this is the interesting thing. Some people say that Moore's Law is just a result of people needing to keep up with the speed of competition in uh, the semiconductor business. So if you're in such a company producing semiconductors, you've got to do the same results as everyone else, otherwise you're going to get behind. So Moore's law actually, it's not a law, it's something that we are we're producing ourselves. So this guy called Ray Kurzweil, he's an inventor, author, entrepreneur, and also actually since a few years ago, research director at Google, uh, did some observations regarding exponential growth in technology. And he looked at computers, old computers, before Gordon Moore's observation, All computers weighed by radio tubes and relays and punch cards, you know, all that stuff, all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, and he discovered that the doubling of capacity has been going on for a hundred years, even before we observed it in 1965. So he new. And even he discovered that it has been going on since the beginning of life. But if you look at the beginning of life on Earth, with the first organism with one cell, without cell nucleus, the prokaryotic organisms, three and a half billion years ago, it, the start was, you know, you know, it took them to get to organisms with several cells, with cell nucleus, the eukaryotic organisms. It took them two and a half billion years to get, you know, my, to do that little thing. That's what I call a slow starter. Well, actually, that's one funny thing about this. If you work at the other one, at the other direction, uh, the first organism needed to have a DNA molecule. And, and, and to create the DNA molecule is not easy. It, you can't do that in one day. Actually, some researchers calculated that to arrive at that point of development, you would need to go 10 billion years back. Now, the Earth is only 5 billion years old, so that tells you that life didn't was, was not created on Earth, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what happened afterwards? We had the Cambrian explosion with the creation of many of the uh, origins of today's organism families, and we had reptiles, we had... Uh, we had the mammalians being created, we had, humans, we had humans walking upright, and we had cities, and we had, oh wait a minute, What did I say that? Cities and agriculture? Wait, that's technology. Probably we invented the language sometime there as well. So what's happening here is that we see when one kind of evolution will not cope with this, this speed of acceleration, Another kind of evolution takes over, and this, in this case it's a technology evolution. You can see it like this, universe, crea- universe created earth, and earth it created life, and life created humans, and humans got intelligence and, and with intelligence it created uh, technology. So it's all part of the same process, keeping up this speed of acceleration. So what we did we have? We had, yeah, what I say, city, agriculture. The wheel, the knife, the, 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 the printing press, industrial revolution. Uh, we have the electrici- electricity, telephone, uh, television, and uh, the PC and the internet, you know. <laughs> and what Ray Kurzweil observes is that this, the distance between those big steps is getting smaller and smaller. And the funny thing is this acceleration, uh, accelerating pace has not been stopped or even slowed down once ever, not even when the dinosaurs died 65 million years ago when a comet hit the earth, not through all the crises and wars that humanity has been through. It's been going on at a steady pace. So what would be the reason for this? Well, the theory from Kurzweil is that in any system where you have an invention being made, the invention makes things easier and speeds up the speed for new innovations. So, it's an automatic feedback system. It's very intuitive. Every innovation s- increases the speed, and so we're there, it's automatic. It's part of the, the whole process. Actually, when you put that into mathematics, what falls out, it's an exponential function. Well, that's uh, actually mathematics. It's very easy. But anyway, so let's fa- face it. This is the way the, the world we're living in. It, it's, it's easy to feel that, uh, world is going on at a steady pace. What happened in the last 10 years will happen in the next 10 years. But it's not like that. It's accelerating and the funny thing is that we're actually at the very turn of the hockey stick, you know, when it takes, when it speeds up. So then, if that's the situation, what will happen? Well, the prediction by Kurtzweil, and and he's been right several times before, uh, is that we're going to have what's called strong artificial intelligence in 2029, 14 years from now. Now, strong artificial intelligence is artificial intelligence at the level of humans. That's difficult to accept and to believe in. There are several reasons for that. Artificial intelligence has always been connected with hopes and disappointments since the 50s when the concept was invented. And I think there are several reasons. Some of them are psychological. We're so fantastic. You know, no one can be as humans, have the feelings and awareness and the thoughts and intelligence and the associations that we have. I'll tell you what, you don't know even how you work, how you function. You don't know even how your brain is working. It's been demonstrated that when you want to push a button, and you push the button, the decision to push that button is prepared in your brain several seconds before you're even aware of the decision. So we don't know even how we work. It's just the top of us that we are aware of. The rest of us is just something that we don't know what it is. How could we be so sure that that couldn't be replicated in a machine? That's one part of it. Another part of it is what's called the AI effect. The AI effect is that things that humans used to do, but not machines, and then at a certain point, machines are able to do them. Those things, normally we look upon them as particularly human, they're fantastic. We can break a car in a slippery curve, covered with ice or we can play chess or we can make quiz shows or, you know, everything that computers could not possibly do, then at a certain point machines can do it. And at that point we say, well, that's not fantastic, it's just a calculation. And we push that limit further and further. What used to be fantastic because humans could do it, when machines do it, it's not fantastic any longer. It's just a calculation, a computation. So how can we be so sure that we ourselves are not a computation? Think about that. Anyway, I believe it's very probable that we're gonna have strong artificial intelligence in 2029, 40 years from now, or maybe 15, 16, 17, let's say it, actually the hardware is always there, already there, although it consumes large amounts of energy, the brain consumes 40 watts, like, a, like this lamp up there. It's much less energy than a supercomputer. But the big challenge is the software, to create awareness, it's really magic. No one really knows what it is. But if we get there, if we get there, then we're gonna have machines that will be able to improve themselves. What would that mean? Machines that improve themselves, some people believe that that would mean, lead to what they call an intelligence explosion. Because these machines would improve themselves at an accelerating pace, at accelerating speed, and they would get more and more intelligent, very, very fast. And that would lead to some, what some people call superintelligence. in 2045. Kurzweil says in 2045, we're gonna, for $1,000 we're gonna be able to buy a machine that has the same capacity as all brain, human brains in the world combined, for $1,000. Well, it's superintelligence, you can also think about that. A super would not be something as intelligent as Einstein or somebody very smart. It would be something that's so much smarter than humans, like we are smarter than a rabbit or an ant. Yeah, (laughs) think about that. (laughs) So would that entity be interested in talking with us or even being interested in us at all? So when people like Elon Musk or Stephen Hawking are warning us for the risks of the artificial intelligence, this is what they're scared about. And there are several institutes actually working with this issue trying to make this right because they say this is a very strategic, uh, significant issue for humanity because it could mean the end for humanity if we got it wrong, so we must get it right the first time because we only got one chance. Once we've done it, we can't stop it because it's more intelligent than us and intelligence is stronger than anything else. So, think about that. Now, this is very far into the future. It's quite speculative. We don't know if it will happen or not, but I believe that intelligence at the level in humans, that will arrive. Let me instead go back and think about a little. Um, how much time have we? I mean, think about yeah, it. We, you can, uh, oh. Five okay. minutes or so. Yeah, all right. I, 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 you know, I always think about. I, I have this introduction just to make you understand that what people talk about digitization. It's not just apps and social networks, and it's all this power with artificial intelligence and accelerated technologies coming behind, putting the, the power behind it. I usually say that digital, the power of digitization comes with seven forces, and you probably know them all. The first of them is that a copy costs zero dollars, and that changed everything. That hit the music industry and forced the music industry to change business model from selling rec- CD records to go to Spotify model with, with, dis- with uh, a monthly fee. And it was a huge impact in the music industry. And what I say is, this is going to hit any industry. This is digitization. The other factors of digitization is that you you reach the whole world with one click. You can share what you want with one click. You create networks with one click all over the world. You can create stuff like Wikipedia with voluntary work. Stuff like before only countries and global corporations could do. Now you can do that because people want to do it. And it doesn't even show up in the calculations of world economy because it's not calculated as money. Because people do it for free. And then you can mix stuff. My favorite example is Spotify that used to have apps. And, and one of those apps was a dating app. You could date people based on your, or, or, uh, your music playlist. Well, you know, well it says something about you, your playlist. But try to imagine doing that before you had a music service on the internet, you took your CD records, you put them in a box and go down the stairs, into the street and put them on the table and talk to people passing by. Said, you like my records. <laughs> you can't do that. When Content is digitized. You can mix it with other contents from other industry. I, I think, actually, believe that this is one of the most unexplored possibilities with digitization. And on top of all that, you got artificial intelligence. So some people say that the typical business model of the, in the next 10 years would be take an existing business model, add artificial intelligence, and you have it. I think that's possible. So what happened? You know, the music industry was hit. I normally say that we got the same thing. That's going on already, or it's going to happen in, in at least seven industries. And, and, and those are just shortly, you know, media, my own industry, we always struggle with the business model that's falling into pieces because we don't pay for advertisements any longer. And one thing that I think media companies should look stronger into is robot journalism. You don't think that ro- robot journalism is strong, but it's actually very widespread. You have these companies like American Narrative Science say, give us the data, we'll give you the story. They're writing sports report an economy, economy finance report of, of short and, and, and longer reports and several pages, and you don't know it because you don't see the, the, the tagline on the, it doesn't say robot journalist in the bottom, no? no. Robot, yeah, robot. yeah it, machines writing these pieces out of data. They're very well written, and it's just the start of it. Remember, this is the phase right now, it's going to continue. And I think, it's a, I, me as a journalist, I think it's a good thing because I mean, it takes away the tedious work. If a machine can do the tedious work for me, I can focus on the most interesting thing. And you need to do that because the business model is falling into pieces and we don't get enough money. Mm-hmm. So if we can have a machine that does my work without complaining, it's finished in one second, it doesn't go home in the evening, it works in the weekend, it doesn't take vacation, it doesn't quarrel or, or, or discuss if you want to change the angle, and it costs a fraction of what I cost. Well, it's an easy choice. <laughs> That's the media. And then we got, you know, ed- ed- education, where the basic thing, is, why should you have a teacher repeating the same lesson over and over again when a copy costs zero? So now we're making platforms already, they're called massive online open courses, with free education of highest quality, and, and the big perspective is to reach any kid and any student on earth, just, they just need a connected device to have high quality education. It's a wonderful perspective, but it's gonna be a big challenge for you. Um, universities and schools. Healthcare. Now we've got those machines. I don't think I want to discuss so much IBM Watson, that supercomputer that won Jeopardy against humans in 2011. Well, you know, a computer that won quiz shows. That was not the main goal. Watson went to work and now it's working with diagnosing cancer. It goes down these huge amounts of unstructured text and finds the most probable result. And it can make of cancer better than humans and suggest treatments. And then you have machines like, uh, if you heard about Star Trek, the uh, Tricorder, Star Trek, the science fiction film that went on TV television several years ago, they have this machine called Tricorder that you could put in a human that was ill or injured, and it told you what the problem was. Now, the Prize Foundation, which, which finances prizes for technology innovations, they have this innovation um, competition going on called XPRIZE um, Tricorder. And the final is going on right now. 10 teams that have machines, portable machines, capable of diagnosing 15 diseases or telling you that you're okay. And the finalist, the winner is going to be picked next year. So it's not science fiction. Transportation, driverless cars. Google's cars have gone for thousands, millions of miles now without an accident. Well, they had a few accidents but that was only when the driver took over the steering wheel. (laughs) 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 Or when somebody else hit the Google car, and they can prove that because of the data in the car. And you saw maybe, I don't say, saw the the prototype of the car that they want to make uh, like a commercial car, a small, very nice little, like a grand car like that presented last year. It doesn't have a steering wheel, not an accelerator, not a clutch, not not, not the brake pedal, but it does have mirrors because the (laughs) traffic authority wanted to have mirrors. (laughs) But I mean, it will enable people that can't drive a car today to go anywhere where they want. Small kids or, or, or handicapped people or elderly or ill people or blind people. It's an incredible possibility. Apart from that, it will make smart cities much more optimized with much less traffic and you don't need parking spaces. And you can even optimize traffic because you don't only know where the cars are but where they're heading. So you can understand where you are going to have traffic again before it really happens and make cars go another way to to, to avoid the traffic jam. Just the beginning of the possibilities that you have with digitization of transportation, combine that with Uber, by the way. Okay, and they've got to finance, robo robo, um, uh, trading with with stocks, which scared people in the beginning, but now it's actually considered something that's stabilizing the market. And that's something that's going to develop into the financial systems with with um, uh, automation of lots of things that been done autom- uh, manually today in the banking systems and by the way you also have the fintech industry fintech are all those small startups trying to do stuff that the big banks don't understand how to do because they're so used to gaining lots of money with all the traditional way of working and you got cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin lots of stuff going in finance and market as well. You got retail with uh, uh, what you believe that stores would, small stores would go away with the online shopping. It's not going away actually small stores are having a an advantage being having a local presence and they can offer something that even not even Amazon can offer because they are trying with same-day delivery but when you get the stuff and you don't like it you need to send it back again in a small store you can be there and create a rea- relation and you can have a very efficient online store combined with a small store. And they got law Law firms believe that they have tailor-made services, but we've got this um, author and expert in law called Richard Susskind, who wrote a book a few years ago called The End of Lawyers. And his thesis was that if law firms don't understand that what they're doing actually is possible to automate, they're doing the same research over and over again and present a similar proposal for an agreement or a lawsuit, or whatever, that can be automated with a system like Watson, the, the computer that won Jeopardy. So it's actually been done already. Uh, So uh, a student group at University of Toronto that created the the super intelligent lawyer, you can look for that, Ross, it's called Ross. So all these industries are going to be changed by digitization. No industry escapes. So if that happens, let's say that the good side is it's a kind of a democratizing effect on the world. It's offering it's offering possibilities to lots of more people with qualified services from education, to healthcare, to law, to stand up for your right in law, to transportation, to education, to, to uh, media, to lots of more people at a lower cost. Well, the price we have to pay is that jobs will go away because machines will do the job. Now, that is scary. That is really scary for most people. But I will try to see that as an opportunity as well. In the same way as, you know, the digital effect of a copy costing nothing, which makes you understand that you can't have a library with three e-books and say that all the three books are are, are finished, we don't have a fourth copy. But it's ridiculous. When a copy has zero cost, you you can't say that the, the books are finished. Then you're trying to fight the technology that actually have come and changed everything. And we can't fight the technology where machines are actually doing lots of things better than humans, or at least as good as humans. We need to see the opportunity in this. And what I say is that, okay, jobs, as we see them as occupational structures and sti- systems with almost military hierarchy, with puzzles in the machine, where we're doing pieces of, 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 of work together, jobs are going away but work is not, because work, there is an infinity of work. Work is anything we do, even when we're on vacation, or voluntary work, or stuff that we want to do. Without going too much into it, there is actually an interesting uh, opportunity in what's called basic income. When you give a certain amount of money to everyone in, in, in the country, every, any people who live in the country, and you take all away, away all other social programs, and you take away all the basis for corruption for those social problems and you give the same amount to anyone. And then people are free to work and do whatever they want. It's a huge transition because that would mean that you need to ask yourself, what would I really want to do with my life? If we could do that transition as a positive transition, that would be an enormous release of energy, in my eyes. That would mean that people, that people actually, you know, if they could do Instead of what they feel they need to go to work every day and do that, they do what they really want to do. You have, we would have people that are much more engaged, much more engaged than after any kind of team working course they're doing in the weekend for the company, being more engaged. Being more engaged really means doing what you really want to do. I think there is a big opportunity in this. But without going too much into it. Just as a fine finishing up, I, 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 I have a few advice both for organizations and for individuals. If we look back to all this story. So for organizations, try to look at this way. We're gonna face lots of new business models when technology changes every, every way of, of doing things. And most of those business models will be built on data. And the second thing is you gotta be aware, prepared for new players small players doing things in very different ways, very efficiently with technology, being agile, being social, being open, being, you know, um, voting on themselves and 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 their customers and and, um, being crowdfunded and and agile and and, uh, entrepreneur based. They're very different, but they're coming from everywhere and they're threatening business models of existing big companies and try to find collaboration with those new players or with other partners in other industries with the idea of mixing digital content, as I talked about Spotify, you know, and then be prepared for new work content in the organization when machines are taking over things that people used to do before. And then, maybe above all, encourage free thoughts because thoughts are the things that. Most, or will be most important in a time with such a huge change, because we need new thoughts to understand how we can cope with the change. As for individuals, maybe it's easier. It's about, you know, when things are going fast, we tend to look down and, and focus on all the stuff we're doing because things are going so fast. Try not to do that. Try to look up and see the big picture. And when you look up and see the big picture, try to remember your dreams, the things that you really wanted to do. Because in times of change, Maybe this is the time, the occasion, when you actually will be, have the opportunity to do what you would like to do, that you couldn't do yesterday, because the situation has been changed. And then, maybe it's, it's ridiculous, but don't look so much at threats, but more at opportunities. Okay, everyone says that. Ah, why do I say that? Because it's so strong, it's so programmed, in us since millions of years in nature, that you need to watch threats more than opportunity for the, for the simple reason that it's more important not to get eaten than to eat. Because the eating is finished. Actually, it's m- been measured that we're giving three times more weight at threats than at opportunities. But we're living in a quite protected society. So try to push that threat down and look at the opportunity because they're actually coming in times of change. We've got lots of new opportunities. Then you should exchange ideas with people around you. The big things with ideas is that if I have an idea and you have an idea and I give mine to you and you give yours to mine, we've got two each, four ideas. That's beautiful mathematics. You couldn't do that with stuff. If you have one thing and you give it there, it's still one thing. With ideas, you've got four. So those are my, my pieces of advice. And one final thing is that speaking so much of technology, the more I speak of technology, the more I think that. What we really should do is remember that we are humans, because technology, if you look at technology, you remember how difficult computers used to be and how easy they are today, like an iPad or whatever. So technology is actually not the difficult thing. The biggest challenge is to become, specifically for kids and young people, is to become a human person, to interact socially. And that's also, I think, remember who we are, our needs, our desires, our human values. It's what's going to guide us when we're trying to shape this accelerating te- technology to make it something positive for humanity. So, with well that, I think, thank you. On that note, no, I think you might have a couple of questions. Oh so yeah, I do, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, Um, yeah, I, I've got a, a two small questions for you that you can think and, and discuss around your tables. Um, you know, uh, taking inspiration from my, um, what I'm speaking, speaking about. And one th- what the first question would be, at your own work, what tasks would you like to be taken over by machines? What things that is being done at your work and that you're doing, would you like to have machines doing instead of you? And in that case, how would that make it possible to evolve the work that you are doing, okay? So that's one question in two parts. And the other question is, how do you think that we as um, a a country or a governmental institution or something like that should um, contribute to, a, possible, uh, a positive development if jobs are actually going away uh, little by little because machines are taking the jobs. So how do you think that we should act as a state or a nation or a government to help that process being a pos- positive process? Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to our talk. We'll be back soon with more thought-provoking content. So if you enjoyed this talk, please consider following our podcast on Spotify and other podcast streaming services. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with our events at Full Circle Ideas on Facebook or watch our other talks and interviews on YouTube at Full Circle Brussels. Until next time.